just received our Provision for the Vision uh, offering over the last couple of weeks. And so far, we've received $125,000. Come on, let's give the Lord a hand. And I do want to thank you. That's not in pledges. That's what's come in. And I think that's amazing. Last year, we had our largest ever Provision for the Vision offering, and that was 132000 and really comes over the next, you know, to the end of the year. Some people obviously can't give right now, but they want to give a little bit later. And, and so I know that we're going to have more this year than what we had last year. And I, I just think that's amazing. I, I think it's fantastic. And so thank you, thank you, thank you. You make this pastor very, very happy, right? And my pastor's heart is glad. Also want to thank those who came to the prayer meetings during the week there. There's something powerful with prayer when people come together with a goal in mind to pray. Now, the, the goal of the prayer meetings for the summit is really this. It's, it's as simple as this. Jesus said, you know, a father doesn't give a stone to his son if he asks for a piece of bread or asks for a fish. He goes, how much more will God give of the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And I don't just want to get together on, at summit have a nice meetings. I want us to meet with the Holy Spirit. I want God to move. I want God to do something. And so I'm going to use the weapons of God's warfare and we're going to call and ask for the Holy Spirit to come and it's just going to be wonderful. We're going to ask, Holy Spirit, move. Holy Spirit, move. Who needs a touch from God? Who needs a touch of the Holy Spirit? Not so it's in just your head, but it's in your hearts, in your soul. I believe that God wants to do that. In one of the prayer meetings this week, I felt God speak to me that this is a particularly important summer, that God is about to make a shift in the atmosphere of our church, that we are coming to the end of one chapter and going into the next. I believe that this coming summer is actually going to be a bridge to the next stage or next chapter for Emerged Church. I felt God say to me that he's building our church and that we are coming into a season of fruitfulness and effectiveness. So I was pretty happy afterwards when uh, Alan Lapworth, who looks after all of our seniors, came to me and he said, look, I, I was praying and he goes, I, I felt God show me the picture and it was of a prune tree that was now bearing so much fruit. There was just so much fruit that was coming from this tree. And I just thought, I'm going to take that because that is a confirmation to what I just felt God say to me, that God is going to launch us into our next chapter. So get on board, register today, make sure that you're at summer. Don't wait. Don't make me stress. Right? Don't make me stressed. Go and do it today. Go and register today. I've got a little kind of in our office, you'll see like a thermometer that tells me. And I'm believing that this year we're going to have 400 people come to our summer. You know, we've had a few more than that in the past, but right now with different things, getting people in church has been somewhat of a challenge. We have about a thousand people that would say that Emerge Church is their church who come over at least once in a month, right, to one of our locations, to one of our services. So we're believing that 400 are going to come. And so what we've done, oh, Jacinta, can you just pass me my phone, please? What we've done as a staff, we have, oh, now I've got stuff, by the way, no cases today, right, uh, for COVID, that's good. 
And so what I've got is on the, my phone, thing has got like 400, uh, the number, because that's what I'm believing for. Every time I open the phone, I see that number 400, like the spotted and speckled sheet that Jacob had, right? I decided that's what I'm going to believe for. That's what I'm going to see. And I'd ask you that you would download, which you can get from our Merge Church Facebook page. If you're not on our Facebook page, I'm sure there's some way. See Jacinta afterwards, and she'll find a way for you to get that onto your phone. If you don't know how to get it onto your phone, see Jacinta as well, right? And she will help you get it onto your phone. And uh, come on, let's give Jacinta a hand. And uh, it's, it's wonderful. Also, Nina texted me. Now I want to read what that text was. <laughs> All right, so uh, Nina isn't here. She's uh, with her mum. Please pray for uh, Nina and her family. Her mum's in hospital right now. Her brother has just had cancer of the kidney. His kidney's been removed. His sister-in-law's just had a lump removed from her breast. And there's just so many different things. It's so intense. And so she's gone down there to kind of take up the slack for while the other members of the family are, uh, are having to deal with some of the things that they're going through. So please just continue to pray for her. I know that she would like that. So getting back to what I was thinking, the story of Emerged Church is really like a novel. Now, this, this is not my preaching this morning. This is just the preamble, all right? So uh, I will get to preaching soon enough. But the, the story of Emerged Church is like a novel. It's like a book. There was a beginning. In 1948, a group of believers believed that they had a call from God and they're going to start Redcliffe Church. That's chapter number one, right? And then what happened is that chapter number two is all these godly men and women establishing a church at a time when the culture was very much against Pentecost. They wouldn't want to receive Pentecost. And in many ways and in many places, and especially with other churches, they considered the Pentecostal church to be like a cult. And so our fathers and, and mothers in the faith, they pioneered a way for us and they did great work. So that's chapter number two. And in chapter number three, the, you see that the, the buildings are built out there at Redcliffe. And then Chapter number four, Albany Hills Christian Church is established in around the early 90s. Just a group of believers coming together, meeting in the PCYC at Arana Hills, and the church is established, goes through some pastors. Chapter five, uh, uh, buildings are actually, you know, kind of created here at, uh, at Albany Hills, and it's, it's wonderful. Then we now have three locations. So the, I said chapter number six was when we came together. Now, this is what's interesting. This week I realised it's five years ago this Sunday that we took on Redcliffe, that we actually became a merged church. Five years to this Sunday. How good is that? And now it's not just one church in two locations, it's one church in three locations and hopefully in God many more to come. So I feel that it's strategic of God to move us into our next chapter of fruitfulness and effectiveness. I just feel there's going to be a, a fruitfulness that's coming. And so I think it's going to be incredible and I think it's going to be marvellous, which happens to be the name of our summer. So uh, register and be there. It indeed is going to be marvellous. And come to the prayer meetings. They're just excellent prayer meetings. They're just faith-filled prayer meetings. You know, to be in an atmosphere of faith at this time is really good because so many of the atmospheres that we find ourselves in are not faith-filled atmospheres. So it's good to be 
in a prayer meeting like that where faith happens and is excellent. So enough of the infomercial. Let's get to our preaching. Father, I would just ask that you take what I'm about to say this morning. Make it real. Make it life. Make it life-changing. Make it thought-provoking, oh God. Father, Lord, let people leave here today thinking and, and, and considering your kingdom and looking further into things, oh God. Father, I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is our theme this year? What is our theme this year? Okay, today's title of our message is Live Righteous. Live Righteous. I want to speak to you today about living without sin, living without sinning. You know, preaching against sin, it's not something that you hear a lot about today. And to be honest, for many times, for many years, it was pretty much the staple of all preaching. Preaching against sin, preaching that sin wasn't good and sin isn't good. But to be honest, I felt that it actually focused on the wrong thing. It actually focused on what happened after you die. It was all fire and brimstone. You go to the movies, you're going to die and go to hell. You have a man and you have a beard, you are not a godly man, you are definitely going to go to hell. You're a girl and you show a bit of leg, oh, you're definitely not a godly girl, you are going to hell. And what it was kind of spoken about was essentially that your sin would send you to hell. It was your sin that sent you to hell. And what it did, it kept people in fear of God rather than fearing God. And there's a very big difference, right? It kept people in fear God's going to get me rather than a reverential fear of God. I just want more of God. And so they would use scriptures like this. And reading it, it's pretty true. It says what it says. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. On the face of it, on that scripture, it's pretty condemning your sin is going to send you to hell. And to be honest, every one of us is condemned by some of those words. You might not do the big ones, hopefully, right? But all of us have been a bit greedy at times. All of us have reviled. All of us have made something more important than God, which is actually idolatry. And if you read that verse on its own, then we're all in trouble. But this verse makes sense when you read it in conjunction with the next verse. So from 10, it goes to 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. See, it's not the sin that sends us to hell. It's our separation from Jesus. Sin is dealt with once and for all by Jesus' death and resurrection who came into complete victory over sin and death. Our sin does not send us to hell. Our sinful nature does. We are already going to hell without Jesus. All of us are on the destination to hell separated from Jesus. We have a sinful nature. We have a sinful nature. And that's what it means by being saved. 
you are saved from your fate of going to hell by accepting the fact that Jesus died on the cross and Jesus' resurrection for you, of accepting Jesus Christ as your Saviour. He's the one offering you that lifeline. And when you take hold of that lifeline, you are saved. Sin isn't bad because it wrecks your chances of heaven. Sin is bad because it wrecks your life on earth. I want to say that again. Sin isn't bad because it wrecks your chances of getting into heaven. Sin is bad because it wrecks your life here on earth. Righteous living doesn't get you into heaven, but righteous living makes your life on earth a whole lot better. Sin makes your life on earth a whole lot worse. See, the enemy has sold the world a big lie that sin is fun, that sin is pleasure, that God is some big cosmic fun killer that the Christian life is boring, that you miss out on all these good things if you give your life to Christ. Yet it's not true. It is not true. A righteous life actually results in an abundant life. But a life that is full of sin leads to a life that constantly closes in on yourself and hurts you. God isn't trying to stop us having fun. Let me give you one example. Imagine how different the world would be if we kept just one of God's Ten Commandments to keep sex inside of marriage. Imagine if we just kept that one law. Out of all of them, we just that's the one we kept. Think about how different the world would be today. There'd be way less divorce. There'd be no child sexual abuse. There'd be no rape, there'd be no affairs, there'd be no prostitutes, uh, prostitution, for which prostitutes would be amazingly happy about. They hate their lives. They fall into all sorts of addiction and violence because that's the way that they see they can't do anything else. There's no sexual abuse. There'd be way less perversion. There'd be way less unwanted children. There'd be a whole lot less violence and a lot less domestic abuse. There'd be stronger marriages, better parenting, stronger children, and better families. See, God wasn't trying to make us miserable and keep something fun from us. He's trying to protect us and make our lives better and to make our lives easier. Sin always wrecks things in this life, not the next life, because Jesus took care of that. Jesus took care of our sin. He doesn't judge me for my sin anymore. Instead, he puts it behind his back, the Bible says. He puts it as far as the east is from the west. He has chosen to forget it because Jesus took the penalty that I should have had. So it doesn't affect me there, but it affects me here. Look at it. You think about the problems. Sexual morality, I just talked about that. Idolaters, trusting in stone and wood. What a waste of time. I'm just reading Isaiah right now, and Isaiah speaks about it so much. Like, you're trusting in this piece of stone. You're trusting in this piece of wood. It might be good. It might be precious. It might be worth a lot. But in the end, it's a stone. It's a wood. It can't do anything for you. It is actually powerless, right? Adultery, oh, we talked about that. Practice sexuality, I just talked about that. Thieves. 
Oh, you don't want to be a thief. It just doesn't do anything good for you. The greedy. If you're greedy, you always want more. No matter how much you have, you just want more, right? Drunkenness. Let me tell you, there isn't a family. One of the reasons I don't drink myself, and that's my decision. I'm not telling you that's what it has to be your decision. But one of the reasons is, is I'm a pastor. And I want to tell you, there's not one family in this church that has not been negatively affected by alcohol somewhere, some stage. And so therefore, I'm going to say, okay, I'm just going to stay away from that. You drink, great, fantastic. I'm not telling you you can't. That's my decision and what I want to do, and that's how I live. Right, see, God, is, 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 is you do any of these things in your life, swindle, revile, if you do any of those things, your life is actually guaranteed problems, guaranteed struggles, and guaranteed issues. So when I ask you not to sin and preach against sin, it's because I actually want you to have a better life. It's very interesting. The, the, the way is narrow to the ways of God. It seems constrictive because you come in through Jesus, but then once you're through the gate, it widens up and your whole life becomes greater, bigger and better. My life from before as a Christian to after as a Christian is completely different, but the way is narrow. The way to destruction is why, just do what you want. But in the end, it narrows. And your life choices and the troubles that you get into actually narrow you and make your life smaller. Now, preaching against sin, so to speak, like you can't be doing this and you can't be doing that and you can't be doing this, to be honest, is actually counterintuitive. It focuses you on your problem because it's impossible for your brain to think the negative. If I were to ask you right now not to think of an elephant, there's not one person in this room who just didn't think of an elephant. It's impossible not to. Don't think of a giraffe. Don't think of a yellow car. You can't do it. Your brain can't do it. Your brain is impossible for that to happen. So preaching against sin, don't do this, don't do this, and ask you to stop sinning by focusing you on sin isn't going to help you at all. I shouldn't get drunk. I shouldn't get drunk. I'm not going to get drunk. I'm not going to get drunk. Don't get drunk. Shouldn't get drunk. What am I thinking of? I'm thinking of getting drunk, right? Like it's when you play golf, right, they tell you that if you're having to hit over a bunker, right, don't look at the bunker, right? Make sure the last thing you look at is the, the flag and then you hit it. And sometimes you're still hitting the bunker because I'm just a bad player, right? But the thing is, is what you focus on. If I focus on the bunker, focus on the water, it goes in the water every single time. Every single time. I promise you that is true, right? <laughs> See, focusing yourself to try and get out of whatever it is that you're trying not to do only makes it harder for you. Paul understood this and he wrote this to us in Colossians 1.20. He said, you have died with Christ and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep following the rules of the world such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. And listen to this. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, high self-denial and severe bodily discipline but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires 
or in many other versions says, conquering is a person's flesh. Focusing on the sin isn't going to help you overcome sin. Focusing on making your flesh overcome your flesh isn't going to make you overcome your flesh. See, the Bible is smart and God is the greatest psychologist there ever was. He knows how we work. And he says, don't focus on me. Sorry, don't focus on sin. He said, focus on me, right? He says, don't focus on sin. Focus on me and sin will not be your issue. Now, this sermon came out of two things. It came out of this book that I'm reading now. I read it many years ago, and I've been asking some of the young people in our church to read it, so I thought I'm going to read it again. It's by Alistair McGrath. It's called Christian Theology and Introduction. And really what it is, it's a, the, the, the rise of theology through church history. And it starts off with the very beginning of church, and it, it's just a wonderful book. It takes some reading, but it's, it's, read, it's, it's written easily, and, and it's a wonderful book. And so you, you see church history through the evolution of uh, theology. And, 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 I, and I really enjoy it. I'm getting a lot out of it. He doesn't barrack for any real points of view. He just says, these guys believe this, these guys believe this, and this is kind of what won and, and what didn't, and, and all of these different things. Now, part of it, because obviously when you look at church history, you actually have to look at how we got the Bible and how the Bible came to be. And so they had a, a, around 290, year 290, they, they put the books of the Bible and they looked at all of these different things because there wasn't just the writings that we see in our Bible today. There were many other writings at that time. So they talked about one, and the book talks about a number, but one of them caught my eye, and it was called the Dadash, or the, what, what let me say, the teachings of the 12 apostles. Now, it's written probably about 120 years after Jesus left the earth. So it's pretty kind of new in terms of uh, writings and, and all of these things, and I thought, Wow, that's a really good title. I wonder what it said. And I had a quick look at it, and I got it up so you can actually have a look at it. It's still there. And let me tell you how glad I am that they didn't put that in the Bible. Right? The title's fantastic. I, I want to know what the 12 apostles thought. I want to know what they said. I want to know what they thought should be church practice and, and all of these things. It's five chapters. And let me tell you, it's five chapters of thou shalt not, thou shalt not. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. And instead of having 10 commandments, it's like 250 commandments and it's just crazy. Some of it is just um, just crazy stuff. You know, they, they took like what Jesus had brought down to just two commandments 120 years earlier, which is love God with all your heart and your neighbour as yourself. And they made it so much more. They made it all about how to behave as a Christian instead of about being a Christian and growing in your knowledge of Jesus. They made it about the outward practices before man instead of the inside practice of having a heart for God. It said ridiculous things. That if you fasted on a Monday or a Wednesday, you were a hypocrite. But if you fasted on a Tuesday and Friday, you were good. Now, aren't you glad that's not in the Bible? Could you imagine the rules that we would have made 
around stuff, if all of those things, first of all, I think it's amazing that they're just fasting two days a week. That, that's, that's, that's cool. They fasted a lot. And, you know, I want to tell you, over the years, over the centuries, the church has been fighting the battle, and that's what I'm seeing from this book. The church has been fighting the battle between outward practice and inward godliness. The book was written just a hundred years, just a bit over a hundred years after Jesus' resurrection, and already men made so many laws about what was sin and what wasn't. I find baptism to be one of the best examples of that. You read the book of Acts, baptism spoken about a lot. You'll see it in the day of Pentecost, 3,000 were saved on that day and 3,000 were baptised on that day. They didn't go to their class, they didn't do nothing, they got baptised. They didn't display a godly life, they got baptised on that day. We see later in Acts, I think it's Acts 8, that Philip goes to Samaria, a whole lot of people get saved. Once again, they're saved and baptised on the day. No, no kind of class, no kind of testimony, no anything like that. We see the Ethiopian eunuch, right? Philip's with him. He goes, well, why can't I get baptised today? Yep, good point. Let's get baptised today. In Acts 19, we see Paul meets some people. He baptises them right then there. One of the first questions, you've been baptised? Oh, okay, let's get baptised. And in 100 years, from that, from that being written. But less than 100 years later, to get baptised in the church, you needed to have been a Christian for one year. You needed to have demonstrated good works. You needed someone to stand up on your behalf and tell everyone that, yes, I testify that Jacinta is a godly girl and I've seen her do good works and I haven't seen her do anything bad. So, yes, she can be baptised. And you had to fast on that day. I think the last one's a good idea, right? But uh, uh, isn't that amazing? Within 100 years to get baptised. Yet in the Bible, none of that. Some people use uh, John's baptism, but that's a different baptism which Acts 19 speaks about as well. See, men and women, we want to quantify things. We want to have lines and we want to have boundaries. And we go, okay, if I, just tell me where the line is and I won't cross it. Where it's not about whether you cross the line or not, it's about your heart. God's not look at whether we cross the line or not. He looks at the state of our heart. And we can fool ourselves if we just make it about the line because you can stay behind the line and have a heart that's far from God. And there's some people who have gone way over the line and still have a heart for God because God looks at the heart of a man or a woman. People like this because they don't have to talk and have the responsibility of keeping relationship with God. Just tell me what I have to do, what I'm not allowed to do, and then I can just live my own life making sure I do and don't do the right things. Whereas if it's about relationships, about your heart, then you have responsibility about your heart and where it is, and about your devotion, and about your heart for God. See, in the Old Testament, God, see, this wasn't just something of the New Testament. In the Old Testament, God said to the people, he says, come up to the mountain. I want you all to come up to the mountain. God was wanting to speak with the people, but there was smoke, and there was a bit of thunderings, and the people said, oh, no, we, we, we're scared. We're scared. 
Go, we'll give you Moses. Send Moses up there. You tell Moses what you want and he can write it down for us and then we'll do what he said. Right? God's heart is always wanting to have been speaking to people, to have an intimate relationship. How do I know that? Because God calls Moses his friend. Right? That's what Moses got from going up to God was a friendship with God. So it's always been that God has wanted to have relationship about our heart before him. But sin is an issue. And living righteous is a good thing. See, we've, if it's just laws, I keep relationship at arm's length. God doesn't want to be at arm's length. He wants to be right here facing you, talking to you. Sin is an issue, an issue that will wreck our lives on this earth. Our flesh wants to win over our spirit and all of us have an internal struggle. Flesh, spirit, flesh, spirit, flesh, spirit. What's going to win? Galatians 5.17 says, The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are opposite to what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other so that we're not free to carry out our good intentions. Right? So, so there, there, there's a fight within us all and none of us win it all the time. None of us allow our sin nature to win all the time. None of us allow our spirit nature to win all the time. There are different times and different seasons, different things. And so we need an answer. We need an answer. And this is where the second part of this sermon. So the first one came as I looked at man's propensity to always want to have a line of what I can cross and what I can't do. And yet that's not how Jesus wants us to live. He wants us to live one-on-one -on -one in relationship with him. And I came to this in my devotions. I'm doing Isaiah in my devotions at the moment. And I came to the story of King Hezekiah and it's, it, it was excellent. Now, it's over two and a bit chapters, so I'm not going to read all that. I'm just going to read some kind of headlines. I'm going to read the first verse and it says this, Isaiah 36 verse 1. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, King Sennacherib of Assyria came to attack the fortified towns of Judah and conquered them. So I always loved this story because back in 1984, I was doing Bible college and there was this girl who got up to do chapel in the morning, which is we did it every morning. We'd have chapel and then someone would speak. And this young Italian girl got up there and she started to speak from this story. And I just went, oh, she's nice. Right, and it was Nina, by the way. All right, right before you go, it was Nina, right? And she goes, I can't say the word Senecherub. I'm going to say Tommy, right? And then she'd read the whole story and all the time say Tommy, right? But I can't use the word Tommy because in the end, my whole sermon kind of sits on the meaning of King Senecherub's name. Since King Senecherub, King Senecherub, Tommy, right? <laughs> Names means this. Is it going to come up? Is it going to come up? I don't know. Look at this. King Senecherub's name 
means sins multiplied brothers. King Hezekiah, his name means God is my strength. He's a good king. He's a godly king. He'd brought many great changes and, and he'd changed the direction of the heart of the people and he'd been a great king. But he'd been a king for a long time. And what happens is that sin and temptation now come and threaten him. Sins multiplied brothers. See, sin never just attacks you on thing. Then there comes this. Then there comes the kind of hider. It's always multiplication. You think you're going to do this little thing and all of a sudden you're doing this because now you've got to lie about it. And then you've got to try and hide it. And then you've got to try and minimise it. Sin always multiplies. It's got brothers. never just this one thing. It's a whole lot of things. And so sin comes against King Hezekiah. King does. King Hezekiah sends out his representatives and they endeavour to negotiate. But I want to tell you, you can't negotiate when it comes to sin. Sin tries to create the narrative in your life. It says things like this, just this once. No one will know. It doesn't really matter. This is just who you are. You can't change yourself. You've always been like this. God will forgive and he will. Imagine how nice it'll be. They don't deserve to get forgiven. Teach them a lesson. It's okay to give up or give in. See, sin tries to create a narrative. So don't negotiate. Don't bother trying to overcome. And over the years, I've been amassed, and, and I want to tell you, you know, different ones, Mrs. Carlidge, Pastor uh, uh, Fred, just you would have heard some stories over the years of people's theology matching their level of sin. So Hezekiah goes to Isaiah. He's like going to the Word. He's the one who gives the Word of the Lord. Hezekiah goes and gets a Word of the Lord. And we see here the way out of sin. Go to the Word of God. Go to the presence of God. Hezekiah doesn't concentrate on Sennacherib or in our uh, scenario that we're talking about today, we can't concentrate on sin. Hezekiah concentrates on God and getting a word from God. And that's God's weapons of choice. It's his word. It's, it's his sword. That's what he's given to you to overcome the, the enemy. And that's what we need to do. Not concentrate on overcoming the sin, but concentrate on God's word, concentrate on God's presence. The Bible says, lay aside malice, evil speaking, and all these things, and desire the pure milk of the word of God as a newborn babe desires milk. Right? We desire the things of God like a newborn babe. And it says we understand and put the word into our lives that sin loses its attraction, loses its noise, loses its declaration over us, and we're able to move forward. That's what we need to do. Our desire for sin diminishes as we concentrate on the presence of God and on the Word of God. Isaiah gives Hezekiah a word. He says this in 37, 21. He says, Then Isaiah, son of Amos, sent this message to Hezekiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Because you prayed about King Sennacherib of Assyria, the Lord has spoken against him. Because you have prayed about your sin, because you've 
come to me with your sin, because you've come to me with that temptation, because you've come to me, I'm going to give you a way out and this thing isn't going to overcome you. I, I, I love that. The word then prophesies the eventual fall of Sennacherib, but there are two verses of the prophecy that I like to highlight. And it's verse 29 of chapter 20, 37. It says this, Because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put a hook in your nose. When you get mad at God, when you say God is unfair, when you say God isn't big enough, able enough, when you, when you call aspersions on the largest of God, that's why this morning I felt it was to say He reigns above it all. When we stop believing that, when we don't believe that God is actually king, that actually ruler, that God is in charge, when we don't believe that, we set ourselves up for sin to come knocking at our door. When you become complacent in your spiritual disciplines, you become a target for sin. And sin will catch you. It will put a hook in your nose. It's very similar. The word temptation in the New Testament gives us the picture of a baited hook. Sin looks pretty tasty from the outside, but it's actually a hook designed to entrap you and eventually kill your promised kingdom abundant life. Temptation is there and it wants to ensnare you to live a lesser life than the life that God has promised you or planned for you. See, you remember how I started this sermon? Sin is not about getting into heaven or not. Sin is about your life on earth. God who knows everything, God who knows you, God who knows all of history, He says what sin is not a, as you've heard me say many times, a third world dictator side, this is sin, this isn't. God knows what works and what doesn't. And He goes, you want to live the abundant life, then live according to the Word. Stay away from wickedness. Stay away from those things that are going to hurt you. Stay away from ungodliness and you will live an abundant life. That's the promise that I have from you. The enemy, the wicked life, the unrighteous comes but to kill, steal and destroy. But I have come that you may have life and life more abundant. You know, sin is waiting at the door when we get upset with God. The enemy goes about as a roaring lion, seeking you me may devour the isolated one, the lonely one, the, the attituded one. The enemy's out there looking for you and planting a temptation in front of you. If you get complacent and don't have those disciplines of your life. You know, I don't always feel like reading my Bible. I always feel like praising in church. I don't always feel like going to God in prayer. I always feel like reading the Word and doing those things, but they're disciplines I've put in my life and they have helped me again and again and again. The amount of times I've come into church and then Jason plays ding and I'm like ding and like that. It's because I've put a discipline into my life. 
the amount of times when I felt overwhelmed by something and I just don't know what to do and, and it's getting too much, I just have to go and pray. Sometimes I've got so angry at something and the thoughts that I'm thinking are so terrible, I go, the only way I can overcome this is to go and pray because otherwise I'm going to do something really dumb and really bad and really stupid. Right? It saved me again and again and again. Right? Doing things and putting disciplines in my life. I can't sit there and say, hey, I'm never going to do a, a wrong thing or I never have a bad thought. But you know what? If I'm never alone with a woman, I'm never going to do anything. Hey, right? it's a good discipline. Not because I'm so godly, why don't know? I'm just got good work, disciplines in my life. You understand? You understand? Instead of trying to sit there and say, oh, what can I get away with? What can, how close can I get to that line? Why don't you go after Jesus? Oh, Jesus. Oh, I love you, Jesus. Oh, I want you, Jesus. Oh, I want you, Jesus. That's how we overcome sin. Don't worry about the sin. Get in love with Jesus. Get in love with Jesus. Maybe the band could come. God gives an answer in this prophecy to complacency, to those disciplines, to, to those temptations, to when they're angry. Goes. And this is very interesting because it's not about trying to combat the sin. It's around, once again, the pursuit of God. Isaiah 37 verse 32 says, But out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. See, complacency gets you into sin sights, but it's a silver God that gets you victory. I get so busy about chasing what God has for me in his kingdom and the abundant life promised to me, I haven't got time to be meddling with the temptations, with sin. I haven't got time to get mad with God. I haven't got time to get complacent with God because I'm busy pursuing the kingdom. I'll finish with this. When King David fell in sin, it was when he allowed complacency to get into his spirit. The Bible says it was when the time when kings should go to war, when he should have been at war fighting, when he should have been with his men fighting, he said, no, I don't need to do that. I can just stay at home. My men can fight for me. They can do it. I'll just give the command from here. And what he did with that extra time, one day he's out in the balcony and he sees sin. And sin said yes. And I want to tell you, the rest of his days, he was marked by that. God forgave him. Jesus didn't mind to be called the son of David. God, through many times, blessed people and, and forgave people and, and withheld judgment from people because of King David. Heaven sorted it out. But in his life, he had trouble. Trouble with his children. Trouble with rebellion. Trouble with all sorts of factions and fighting. It never left him. It never left him. Sin isn't about getting to heaven or not. If it was about sin, all of us are going to hell. But if it's about what Jesus did for us, accepting that, then I'm just going to love Jesus. I'm just going to love Jesus. I'm just going to love Jesus. 
Father, I pray right now. I pray, oh Lord, that we would just stir our desire and our love and our hunger for the things of the kingdom. Let me be so in love with you that I go and sin no more. That woman caught in adultery, Jesus just says, go and sin no more. Because of an encounter with Jesus, she was able to live that. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that that where we have allowed complacency, where we've allowed an attitude towards you or towards a neighbour, a brother, a sister, a Lord, Father, protect us from the enemy who would seek to draw us in. Protect us from that sin nature. Father, if I feed my spirit and starve, so to speak, my flesh, in temptation, when when sin comes against me, oh God, I'm going to have the strength to choose your ways rather than fall to my base ways. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that we would live in righteousness, O God. We would live righteous, O God, not focusing on sin, on whether you did this or whether you didn't do that, or you're in because you did do that and you're out because you did this other thing. Father, let us not be like that, O God. But Father, let the culture and the atmosphere of our church be one of devotion before You, O God. Father, devotion to You, O God. That Father, that we would long to sit at Your feet. We would long to read Your Word. We would long to spend time in Your presence. We would long to be with brothers and sisters, O God. We would long, Father, to help those, O God, who who can't help themselves, O God, to do acts of kindness and and of charity and of love, O God. That we would have a patience to go the extra mile with people, O God. That we would love the unlovely, O God. Father, it would be about so much of what we are doing in response to You versus what we have to do. Father, draw us closer to You. In Jesus' name.